0: excited to continue this series. We're calling it Jesus in Between because many of us are familiar with the birth of Jesus. The shepherds, Jesus born of a Virgin Mary, what we celebrate at Christmas in the story surrounding his birth. Many of us are familiar with the story surrounding Easter, his death, his burial, his resurrection, our living hope, Our desire over the course of this series is to fill in some of the in-between, because what we know, the information and understanding and perspective about a person influences the way in which we respond to that person, and our hope is to fill out the picture for all of us so that we have a better understanding of who Jesus is. You know that from your own interactions When you learn information about a person, it may change your perception or the manner in which you respond to that person. Take, for example, our student ministries intern, Ethan Taylor. He's over there at the 10 with our middle school students. A week and a half ago, he passed his motorcycle test license, right? So if you see someone with an Evel Knievel helmet and a 2006 Yamaha Vino. It might not be me. It might be Ethan as well. So both of us are uh, on the open road with one scooter at the moment. So we're enjoying that, but he passed his test. And then uh, think of our creative arts intern, Garrett Hirsch. Garrett is a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. He has his own marathons, if you ever want to join him. They're pretty often. And it won't be surprising if we hear Garrett drop a Lord of the Rings quote in a staff meeting, right? He loves Lord of the Rings. Our family ministries pastor, Greg Foote, he's over at Barberton preaching this morning. He proposed to his wife in Engagement, Ohio. You might be scratching your head, but he decided, he figured it out, that Engagement Ohio is halfway between Dayton and Marion Ohio. He learned that on a Laffy Taffy joke when he was young, kind of locked that in his register to use it later, drove halfway and took his wife, then fiance Shannon, and proposed to her in Engagement Ohio. Isn't that crazy? Right? Or Our creative arts pastor, Aiden Finn, who was leading us this morning, I learned this like three weeks ago, was shocked. He doesn't use shampoo in his hair. Now, I I know, I know, okay, right? His stylist assures him he has the right amount of oil in his hair. He rinses regularly and he uses conditioner, but it's not required his hair to use shampoo, right? That may change the way that you respond to him, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or getting close to him, right? But that is our hope and desire, because over the course of this series, we've learned that Jesus is a unique paradoxical blend, right? That Jesus is fully God and fully man. That Jesus isn't a lot like God or made in his image, but that he is fully God and he has all the attributes of God. But unlike every other world religion, our God became a human. He didn't just appear, he dwelt and did life with us as a man. That he was tempted in every way in which we are. But that he, with authority, passed the test. Jesus is God empathizing with us. That we can approach Jesus, knowing that he's experienced the same struggles that you and I experience. That he is fully God and fully human. But we also know that Jesus is full of grace and truth. In every interaction with him, he doesn't push away from grace or truth, but exists in its entirety. That he's not 50% grace, 50% truth, but he's 100% grace and 100% truth. So in the story that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see a glimpse of Jesus's divinity along with a display of his grace in a declaration of his truth. If you're there, Luke 7. Now, as we hop in this story, it may seem relatively familiar because there are a few other stories like it in the gospels. This story is unique, but it resembles one that is closely seen in Matthew, Mark, and John. Both of the stories involve a woman who chooses to anoint Jesus with expensive perfume, and they both happen to take the place at Simon's house. But one happens years before while the other is happening near the death, the setting and the environment of those who are around are very different from our story today versus this other setting of the disciples. Just reminds me of the importance of kind of putting the Gospels in a chronological order. If you've never read through the Gospels chronologically, we'd invite you, we created the study guide along with the series, 50 Day Journey Through the Gospels Chronologically and it helps us kind of understand and put the full picture of Jesus. So hopefully you're there. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Kind of an interesting word choice, I think, right? That Jesus reclined at the table. We would probably say that he sat at the table. Well, it's actually a little indication of the event that's going on. The event that Jesus would have partaken in would have been similar to a Greek symposium. What that was, that they would invite a traveling rabbi or a teacher to have a discussion about politics and religion and local events and news at a wealthy person's house. And so Jesus would have been invited to this event, and he would have reclined at the table. It wouldn't have been a large table that we see, but it would have been a bench. And so Jesus would have sat on the bench with his left arm down, his feet away, with his right arm free to eat and partake from the table. Every other person at the dinner would be around like spokes on a wheel, So Jesus would be looking across, talking to people, engaging in the meal. And we see that he will be named in a short while, but Simon the Pharisee, who's invited him. Now, the Pharisees are a religious sect of Judaism. They claim to believe in God's inspired word, their Old Testament. But they added their own law and tradition that held equal weight with what they believed of the Old Testament. So they had some 600 laws that they had written as a way of describing these laws. They were extremely moral people. And so Simon has invited Jesus to have a conversation at his house. Life then was much more public than personal. In their house, those having the meal, probably the socially elite, would be gathered around, but there would be onlookers observing and listening in on this conversation. There would be in much like a courtyard setting, people from the village that would learn that this discussion was going on. Entertainment was a little different. They didn't have television to go connect into. So they'd come to this event curious of what this rabbi would be teaching about. If the host was good, he'd put cushions around the courtyard so that they could participate in. And occasionally they may get scraps from the table. And so this event is going on and we see how this woman would have been present. It says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. I like the description, not that she's a sinful woman, but that she lived in that town the people knew her story. They knew her background and her past. Maybe they had interaction with her. Most likely this woman was a prostitute, at minimum was very promiscuous. And so when people saw her, they knew and had interacted with her. And she is on the outside of this meal. And it says that she has an alabaster jar of perfume. This would have represented her livelihood. It was the manner in which she'd entice men to engage with her. And so she brings her livelihood that she would have carried often around her neck along with her to this event that she has learned Jesus will be present. We're not sure at this point how much she knows about Jesus. We know that when we put the gospels chronologically, the events that took place right before was found in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is preaching his gospel to cities and they're very unrepentant and he's preaching judgment. And then he turns and faces the crowd and says these words, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. I'm not sure if this woman heard these words of hope And help was available. But she makes her way, she prioritizes to be in this conversation that Jesus is hosting and he's sharing at. 38, as she stood behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So this woman who's in the outside of the courtyard moves from the shadows into the light. She moves from the outskirts and joins the meal at some point. Now, in those days, it was customary for a host to do a few things as people entered. Often they would greet their guest by putting their hands on their shoulder with a kiss on each cheek. Then they would take them over and they would have their servant or like the lowest person in the setting wash their feet. They would take cold water because with sandals and dung all around, you can imagine what their feet looked like as they entered the house. And then, as they're reclining at the table with the feet far away from the food, they would either put oil on their feet to smell or burn incense. So this woman approaches Jesus, most likely had seen or had been able to observe that these customary things had not been done. It says that she is standing behind him and just crying hysterically. She's in the presence of Jesus and what she knows and believes about him is that there is help and that there is hope. And maybe at that point, she begins looking for a towel. She doesn't see the basin of water or a towel. So she lets down her hair. Now this is pretty scandalous. Women only let down their hair in the bedroom. And so this is shocking, but she doesn't care because she is passionately in the presence of Jesus. And she takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet. She takes that alabaster jar of expensive perfume. She probably was poor, didn't have a whole lot of money, and begins to anoint his feet with oil. She's just sobbing, washing the feet of Jesus in his presence. Now, this was probably a significant distraction, right, that was going on. I can only imagine how many people were paying attention to the conversation going on. And then we see Jesus talk to Simon. He says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, so Simon's right across from him, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching me and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I think it's easy initially to write Simon off as a bad guy, right? Extremely judgmental he never spoke words regarding his thoughts. It says that he thought to himself that Jesus in his omniscience and his divinity knew exactly what was going on in the mind of Simon. He knew in Simon's law and tradition that it said that if anyone interacted with a person like this, that they would be uncleanly for 30 days they had this whole ceremonial uh, purification just to get them back in right standing with those around. As a rabbi, what that would mean is that his teaching was invalid for minimally 30 days. And so Simon's thinking, if this man only knew, he claims to be a prophet, if he knew who was touching him, he would excommunicate her from this dinner but we see it's the exact opposite thing that goes on. Jesus answers him. Don't you hate that if you're married, that your spouse knows exactly what you're thinking, right? Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was the equivalent of an average daily wage, So one man owes him two years worth of salary that he's in debt to and the other around two months. And so he goes on the story. He says, imagine there's two people that have significant debts. They're unable to pay them back. It says, so this man forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I'm not sure Simon needed to think about it a whole lot. Maybe he was good with money, and he says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus responds and says, you're correct, Simon. You have judged correctly. Then I imagine after he's telling them this story, Jesus is reclining, eating at the table. Maybe he stops for a minute, looks Simon directly in the eye, and says, Simon, do you see this woman? How can I not see this woman? She's interrupted this dinner that I had all my friends come to. Of course I see this woman. I can't believe you didn't kick her out. Like this is shocking that you would actually allow her to do that to you. And he goes on to tell Simon this. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven. If you think it was a heated, controversial conversation before this statement, Jesus has just raised the temperature in the room. He has claimed what they perceived as possibly a prophet to now equate himself with God. Only God was the one that could forgive sins. They all knew what he was claiming about himself. And it says, the other guests began to say, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Love is not the requirement for forgiveness. Rather, it's the result. That Jesus makes it abundantly clear. It's not what this woman does to earn favor and acceptance with God. That Jesus in the gospel offers us justification by faith, not vindication by performance. What we see is that Jesus acknowledges that she has a proper understanding of who she is and who he is. That she may be the only one in the setting that understands and has grasped the truth about who he is to be able to experience his grace. Now, I think this story has some important things for us to learn and see about Jesus and some questions that it has for us as we think through it. In the first, maybe isn't completely aware, but I think it's important to see that Jesus sought to make sense to all people. I don't know if you or me, how readily I would be accepting invitations to a Pharisee's house to have a discussion that would be rather heated or, uh, you know, testy kind of situation. We clearly see Jesus' acceptance and love displayed for this sinful woman, but what we may not readily see is that Jesus desperately loves the Pharisee. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't construct a building and only say, come and hear me speak. It says that Jesus walked right into the messiness of people's lives. That he ran and met them where they were at. And he helped make sense of who he was. That Jesus sought desperately to live in such a way to connect the dots for other people. The religiously lost, the broken and the hurting, that Jesus' passion and desire was that he would make sense to all people. This informs our primary value at Grace Church. We say it this way. We live to make Jesus make sense. We are preoccupied with making any necessary sacrifice to make the story of Jesus clear and accessible to anyone seeking after him. This value informs what we do and why we do what we do. It also informs what we don't do as well, because what we recognize, we live in a culture and a setting where Jesus doesn't make sense to most people. And when things don't make sense, they can be intimidating, irrelevant, and frustrating. Frustrating. And so we recognize that we have the opportunity and responsibility to proclaim the, the mystery of the gospel as clearly as I can. That God has given us, for those that have said yes to him, the responsibility of offering this message of reconciliation. That we embrace the responsibility of being his ambassador. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says... We are therefore Christ's ambassador, as though he were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we live with this understanding that God has placed each of us in environments and settings and rubbing shoulders with people who have yet to say yes to Jesus. As a staff and often within our groups, we talk about this concept of praying for our three. What the three represents is three people in our lives that we know don't know Jesus. Three family members, friends, coworkers. And often in staff meetings and in grace group conversations, we're talking and praying for our three Asking how God is using us in a way to help make Jesus make sense. One of the reminders that when I wake up is inside of this Grace Church bracelet is just a reminder that I would pray for my three. Right? And so I have three guys in mind that I'm regularly praying for, asking that God would use me as an opportunity, as his ambassador to help Jesus make sense. All of us who have claimed to embrace the gospel have that responsibility. That the power of the church is when we go. We have the opportunity to help Jesus make sense to others. There's a book called Walk Across the Room by a guy named Bill Hybels. And in it, he kind of uh, gives three frameworks, I think, that impact the way that I see this responsibility of helping make Jesus make sense. He says... Develop friendships, discover stories, and discern next steps. So in any in every interaction we have with people, in the back of our mind should be, where do they stand with Jesus? How can I help clarify and illustrate and lead them to an understanding of the gospel? I think of it uh, this week My daughter, uh, well, all my kids, they're on spring break. My oldest daughter, Maggie, is seven years old, and uh, I'm preparing for my message, and she brings me her artwork, right? We get a lot of artwork over the summer. And in this picture, she has drawn herself very beautifully along with our entire family. Now, this week, when I've introduced our family as a family of six, she's corrected me, said, dad, come on, you know, God is a part of our family, right? So he's up there on the top. And on some level, my daughter who's seven understands that God is with us yet transcendent. She put him on the top because God's above us is what she said. But what I fully don't know is does my daughter know what it means to embrace Jesus in her life? What I pray for consistently, every opportunity I have to try and use an avenue to be able to share this. And so when Maggie brings this picture, the first thought in my mind is discern next steps. (laughs) Right? Maggie, do you know what it's like for Jesus to be a part of your life? Right? And help articulate the gospel in a way that helps make sense to a seven-year-old. That's kind of hard to do. Right? Aren't you thankful for our Power Kids workers? Right? But as we interact with each and every person, in the back of our mind is, what do they know of the gospel? How can I be used in a way to illustrate and help understand Jesus for them? I think that leads us into a second thing that we see of Jesus all throughout the gospels, is that Jesus taught in parables. He taught the gospel and kingdom principles in parables. Parables comes from two Greek words kind of smashed together. It just means to lay alongside. That Jesus used stories and illustrations to highlight his truth and his kingdom principles. That Jesus was a master storyteller. That as he walked and interacted with his disciples and the other people, he would see a fig tree and he'd tell a story, right? Or He'd come across a farm or weeds and he'd tell a story about their life. When I think of this, the question I ask myself is, am I becoming a better storyteller? I remember years back, this kind of changed my perception about how I interact and try to share the gospel. I had a guy named Ben. He was a younger fraternity brother. And Ben and I had many conversations about faith and we would talk about Jesus and his belief, and he came with me occasionally to church. And I remember struggling of like, I'm not exactly sure what Ben believes about the gospel. So I was praying for Ben, talking with one of my friends, and my friend says, have you ever thought about talking about the gospel through common language of your fraternity? And I'm like, It's a great idea, you know? So Ben and I go to Luigi's and I remember having this conversation and I said, hey Ben, what was it like to be a pledge in the fraternity? Do you remember that experience? And was there a point that you remember making a decision to become an active member? What'd you have to do to make that decision? Do you understand what it looks like to become an active member? In God's fraternity. And we had a great conversation about the gospel. Ben didn't choose at Luigi's and pray and accept Christ in his life at that moment. But I remember a few weeks or a month later, Ben was at an evening service and he came and told me, he says, Adam, I got something to tell you. He said, I became a member of God's fraternity today. Right? How can I use stories to illustrate the gospel? Because the more that I understand about the Bible in the long story short should be the way in which I want to communicate and articulate that story, right? Because I have a gospel perspective with which I look through events and circumstances. I think this is the responsibility that we have as parents, right? In Deuteronomy, it says, impress upon your children when they're lying and when they're sitting down. I don't think that means we have a Bible study every minute of the day. What I think is that we look for opportunities to clarify and illustrate the gospel with our kids. That we become master storytellers. I think the last point is the thrust and the most significant for us when it comes to personal application is that all throughout the gospels we see that Jesus fought against self-righteousness and four, self-awareness. It is a known fact that most people think more highly of themselves than the average person. When polled, people think they're more attractive, smarter, and more likable than the average person. This cognitive bias is known as illusory superiority right, that we have qualities that we overestimate in ourselves and underestimate in other people. 90% of drivers think that they are a better driver than the average person, right? I feel bad for that 10%, right, who off the get-go thinks they're a bad driver. Most students think they are smarter than the average student, most people think that they handle finances better than the average person. Simon is skeptical, he's critical, he's self-righteous. He's illusory superiority. He thinks his moral superiority is extremely better than those around him. He lives under this illusion of minimizing his wrong and mistakes and failures and overestimating those in others. And Jesus tells him this parable to put a mirror right up before Simon to say, Simon, you have missed, you have missed your unrighteousness that clouds your ability to see. All throughout scripture, we see God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble That the greatest sin for anyone is not acknowledging and recognizing that we are a sinner. The question that I often ask myself is how am I being like Simon? I recognize there's a point when we can move from being self righteous to self aware, but regularly, how easily do I fall back in a moral superiority? I grew up predominantly in church from a young age, right? I had parents that told me about right and wrong. Can be easy to write off and think more highly of myself, right? That I don't have the same struggles that other people have, right? And I can live in a mindset that maybe I can tend to be judgmental about other people, That I can look at others' faults with a microscope, but look at my own sins with a telescope. That I can have a heart filled with pious pride, angry arrogance, and self-righteous religion. And Jesus fought against self-righteousness. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 3 through 5, what he says is, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think the question that it poses to you and I is am I more interested in passing judgment than taking inventory? I had the privilege of, before I came to grace, I worked as a drug and alcohol counselor at the Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center. And there I became very familiar with addiction and, in particular, Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps. And I remember the fourth step of the 12 steps. It's at that point when you've recognized your lives are unmanageable that you stop and take a fearless, searching, moral inventory. Right? In the context of their relationships with a sponsor, they have a process that may slightly differ based on the sponsor of working through resentments, fears, and hang-ups. Right? That there is this long process of trying to take a personal, moral, spiritual inventory of our wrongs that can help lead someone by God's grace, out of addiction. right? How often do you take inventory? Do I daily stop and think of my mistakes or what I may have said to someone, what, maybe something I said that I shouldn't have said, maybe something that was only kept for me, my actions, how I respond, my lack of love or appreciation or care or concern for someone? Do I stop long enough to take inventory? It's not just overcoming judgment, but it's begin to move that microscope on our own lives. Of stopping, right? Of confessing, which is literally agreeing with God. Agreeing that this is wrong and not his desire. And it's coming before him and asking for forgiveness. It makes me think of this idea of moving from the place of self-righteousness to a constant place of self-awareness. And it reminds me of a guy, Isaiah, in the Old Testament. Isaiah had a unique and unusual encounter with God face-to-face. I don't know if you or me, if I would necessarily want that, right? Like, What would that experience be like? But it says here how Isaiah responded. He says, woe to me, I cried. I can just imagine him bowing on his knees. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's not the amount of sin that I should be concerned about. It's the awareness of my sin that I need to be sensitive towards, right? Because spiritual growth is not just about committing less sins, but it's being more aware of our sinfulness in God's holiness. The question that we must ask ourselves is, do I compare my sinfulness against the backdrop of his holiness? It's understanding the depth of who God is in his righteousness, in his throne, in his perfection. And yet his desperate love for me, a lowly sinner who's rejected him multiple times, right? I love the song that we sang that he calls us a child when I tell him lies, right? That he invites us to be in relationship with him not out of perfection, but out of desperation, acknowledging who I am before who he is. How desperately do I want to be like this woman? That I come to the point of recognizing my brokenness, my neediness, my desire to be forgiven, and to approach God. Because the self-aware extend love in proportion to what they've experienced. She went above and beyond to all the customs that were shown as someone entering the room. She had this radical generosity and gratitude for who Jesus was that helped her to break social norms, that helped her to spare no expense. Because she was in the presence of Jesus. The Pharisee, like you and I, will never experience grace until we see ourselves as the prostitute. Because this is what Paul wrote in First Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Am I living with gratitude, gripped by the grace of God? Is my motivation and passion and desire in the well of the source of God's character and his holiness and his offer of forgiveness? Because when I am struggling to extend love and forgiveness and compassion to each other, I don't turn inward. I don't just grit it out. I look backward. And I look to what Jesus has done as the source of hope, of fullness, of grace, of goodness. And he offers that power and that experience that I can begin extending as I experience more deeply the grace that he has shown? Can I see myself as the worst of sinners, like Paul is writing to Timothy, in desperate need of his grace and his forgiveness? I read a few days ago a quote in a book, Defiant Grace. The author's name is Dane Ortland, And he calls Christianity the unreligion saying, biblical Christianity turns all of our religious instincts on its head. He looks back and he says, the ancient Greeks told us to be moderate about knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong about ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging obligations. I love this. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it's the one faith whose founder tells us not to bring our doing but our need. That in the gospel, our failure and acknowledgement brings acceptance and forgiveness. That Jesus doesn't expect or desire us to bring us the resume of things that we've done to earn favor, but rather the depth and understanding of who we are and our need for him as our savior. Within the gospel is the power to live radical generosity for the sake of others. And it doesn't start by working really hard, but it starts by looking inward and looking up, recognizing the cost and the depth of God's love for us that he offered through Jesus, epitomized on his cross, the ultimate sacrifice, so that he could be in a forever relationship with unworthy people, Because he first loved us, we can begin to extend and experience that love to others. Father, may that reality never get old for us. Lord, may we always run back into your holiness and grace, not out of fear, but out of acceptance. Lord, may we trust and live understanding that our failures can make much of you. Lord, that in our humility, our passion and desire is that you would use us as your ambassadors, that you would use our lives and our words to reflect who you are, to be able to point people, to give them a, uh, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Lord, we think of those that you've surrounded us with. Help us to be your ambassadors well. Help us to understand the depth of your cost in a way which motivates us to live radical lives of generosity. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are and the offer of forgiveness that you've extended because you have the authority and the compassion to do so. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.